Welcome to the Fordham IPLJ podcast with your online editor, Anthony Zangrillo. Today I'm here with staff member, Borja Araglu, and also special guest, Ken Rashbaum. And we're going to be talking about a very interesting blog post that will be going up this week. And it's all about the new release of the 3DS game, Pokemon Sun and Moon. And what were you saying? It's anticipated for how long? How many years? Oh, it's, been, it's actually celebrating the 20-year anniversary. So since 1996, this has been kind of the global recap of Pokemon games. And, and they've really built their marketing strategy based around that, um, so it seems. So. And there was a little hiccup in the marketing strategy. When they gave out a demo a couple of weeks before the release, all of a sudden, the you know great computer hackers out there basically data mined all of this extra information that was given in this demo and basically released the entire Pokedex. Right. I'm correct. Absolutely. So um, basically, the whole Pokemon industry has been kind of building itself up up until this point, and. Um, it, the, the game has gained so much hype over the last year with the Pokemon YouTube channel and other social media sites ha- kind of having their own um, little snippets of what's to come and building that excitement up over the months. Um, and then they had a demo that got released. It is actually the most downloaded demo game Nintendo has ever had to date. So more than Mario, more than Donkey Kong, more than anything, uh, more than Zelda, uh, topping 3.8 million pre-release download demos. And, wow. Um, yeah, so it was a lot. And um, within the first, you know, 12, 24 hours, of course, uh, main kind of Reddit and 4chan boards were already having posts about data miners who were linking their console up or their game demo up to computers and leaking um, on uh, unauthorized, on kind of released and, not- you know, uh, I guess like... I guess yeah. the word is unauthorized at yeah. this point, um, you know, data to the public. And, and a lot of people have been, you know, there's been mixed reactions. Some people seem a little bit excited and it makes them more amped to get the game. Other people have been expressing deep concern and how, you know, the game is ruined for them. Of course, the Pokemon Pokedex was like the big staple of, of what's to come. They released the final starters, which is usually kept till the last week right before the game is released. I mean, I remember yeah. as a little kid, I don't think I've told this story on the podcast, so I will tell it. I went to, uh, you know, had Pokemon Yellow or Pokemon Red as a kid. Coming out of uh, Mass on Sunday, went to go get uh, to the deli, get a Pokemon trading cards, and I got a holographic Charizard on my first pack. Oh, so, you know, this card, go- back then it probably went for $1,000. And I was like, I-, I understand the importance of your final evolution, right, Charizard. Mine was the Venusaur. I remember being seven years old and like there was a little kiosk in the mall that sold trading card games. And all I wanted was this green big like dinosaur on a holographic card. And I said, oh, like I need it so bad. And my parents paid the full $75 for it. (laughs) So I would say, uh, Ken, how do we analyze this from a legal perspective? Is there a certain way that we should ask this question? Well, there is. Actually, it's one of these thorny legal problems that I see in my practice regularly. I had the privacy and cybersecurity group at my law firm, Barton uh, LLP, and we deal with square pegs in round holes on a regular basis. Most of the laws regulating most of the technology that we deal with, and particularly with regard to video games, was written over 30 years ago. It was written for, the most of the laws dealing with digital information were in fact written for paper. And they're trying to force them into these digital pigeonholes where generally they don't fit. So when you're dealing with what is accountable for this conduct and how it's accountable, you've got to look at each of the elements and then go to the statutory language to see if it's broad enough to encompass the uses that, that we're talking about. Um, and you'll see as we go through this discussion, the cases are heavily fact-specific uh, because, the, because the language of the statute was made deliberately elastic. Some people would say it's so elastic as to be unconstitutionally vague. Mm-hmm. Uh, so how do the courts fill them in? They fill them in with the facts of the case. Really bad facts often, but not always, 
determine the results. The court will sometimes, and this is spoken for many years as a litigator, reason backwards from really egregious facts to the result they want to come out of the case. And it, it's a problem for, uh, for the defendants in these cases, for sure, because they don't know what they're up against. They don't know what standard they have to meet. That's very interesting. It's very like a legal realist approach. That they're almost looking at it as like who should win the case, what is the just result, and then coming up with the law ex post, it sounds like. That often happens. Mm. It, you know, we're taught here in law school that's not supposed to happen. But not now in my trademark class. <laughs> Shout out to Professor Hansen. I'm sure he's listening to this right now. Yeah. He must be smiling. <laughs> but judges are human beings. They can't help but be, but be influenced by the facts, particularly where there's so much gray mm -hmm. in, the, in the statutory uh, uh, schemes and in their interpretations. So just for kind of like our new, you know, our, our listeners who not, who don't really have that much expertise in the area of uh, cybersecurity and internet law. Um, what statute, you know, you said there has been a statute that's kind of been progressing and evolving that the courts right. have kind of pulled from for the last 30 years. Um, you know, in your practice, in your experience, which statute would you say uh, really speaks to this issue that uh, seems to be incredibly pre prevalent? Well, we're talking mostly about the uh, Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, which has been amended a number of times, but incrementally. It really doesn't talk to the issues that, that, we're, that we're discussing here. There are states that have statutes that come much closer. California and New York are, are, good, are good examples. Uh, but when you're dealing with the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, the Electronic Communications Privacy Act, the Stored Communications Act, you're talking about very old laws in the tech in the technological area you know six months is a lifetime for all intents and purposes in technological innovation you're talking about statutes from the 80s and 90s so that's where the difficulty really comes in combine that with two other factors one is judges are not always the most technically sophisticated mm -hmm. all right um and combine that as well with the fact that lawyers don't always take the time to educate the court properly on the technology. So it, it's a little bit of a perfect storm, so to speak, to create mass confusion about what the appropriate standards are in innovation, in access, uh, and in use of, of digital information. So I guess just kind of establishing just like kind of as like a recap that we're already, you know, kind of at the start of this discussion in muddied waters when it comes to determining the rights um, of clients. And I guess going back to what you said about how these cases are very narrowly tailored, how they go very case by case with the situation, um, I'd say we should jump right in and just talk about the 3DS itself and the mm -hmm. gaming console, um, kind of the evolution of that and how uh, you, you know, how you think or do not think that it should be protected and, and kind of why you believe that? Well, there are three elements to a prosecution under the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. It is most unusual in terms of federal legislation because it has a civil component and a criminal component. And the two, and the elements overlap dramatically, but the three main ones are number one is a computer used in interstate commerce. Second, access that is not authorized or exceeds authorization. And third is economic damage in excess of $5,000. $5,000 gives you an idea how old the statute is. And there aren't that many criminal statutes that talk about, that talk about liability in dollar value in certain, in certain aspects of the penal law there is for different degrees, grand larceny in the first degree, grand larceny in the second degree, petit larceny, are determined by dollar, dollar amounts. But when you get to, to this level, it's unusual to see that. But So the first question is, I guess, is the game console a protected computer? 
under the CFAA, the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. Uh, and you have to go back to the definition. And the definition is the definition is, is, is ancient. It's from the time when David Bowie was prancing around the stage in Ziggy Stardust. Uh, oh, why? Wow. wow. Good time. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, you t- they define it generally as a device capable of sending or receiving a, a signal. Okay. Now, second point under that, is it used in interstate commerce? Now, these computers you have here, by definition, are now being used in interstate commerce because you're backing up, you're receiving signals across state lines. It wasn't always that simple. When the statutes were written, you know, gaming consoles were, uh, com- were controlled by a, a, a diskette where it had a picture of Super Mario on it. You plugged it into mm. a slot, Mario did his thing. You clicked end, you pulled the disc out, yeah. and it was done. You didn't get updates. You couldn't pay for it online. Uh, you, the terms of use were basically the worst kind of browse wrap. By plugging it in, you agreed to those terms of service. And so there were very few computers back then, and they were in the hands largely of banks, and uh, government institutions and finan- um, financial, other financial institutions, educational institutions, things that Congress, in its wisdom, decided needed, needed protection. These things that we're looking at now, the phone that you've, that, that, that's sitting here, that has more computing power than uh, the first several generations of spacecraft that went to uh, Mars and beyond, were not a glimmer in anybody's eye back then. But the de- definition was meant to be very elastic. All right. So it's also defined by what it's not. Mm-hmm. And that also gives you an idea of the age of the statute because it's a carve-out. A device is not... It goes typewriter? An yeah. automated typewriter. typewriter. Yeah, very, <laughs> very hand, unusual. Yeah, a handheld calculator. Uh. And there are three or four other things. I mean, right now, my refrigerator fits the definition of a computer because my refrigerator will send a signal to the manufacturer if it's malfunctioning. So that's an interesting piece of like trivia, hypothetical, because we're not in that age anymore where, let's say, right. this DS could not be connected to the internet because in the past, it could. And I guess you can argue you could somehow get an unauthorized copy of this game and data mine it and you had no connection to the internet whatsoever. Does this harm the definition, or is it more the ability to? It's a, that's a that's a very interesting question. I said before a lot of these cases are are fact specific. If someone stole a paper rendition of the code and took it home and handed it to someone else as a paper rendition of the code, I'd be hard-pressed to say that would come under the CFAA. But it would come under some criminal statutes for stealing intellectual property. Mm-hmm. Yes. Right. So, you know, copyright law maybe would come in there co- with, well, with, well, with code, yes, right? Well, yeah. Yeah, 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 technically. But there are, there are criminal aspects to stealing intellectual property, usually at the state level. Right. At the federal level somewhat as well, you may get, depending on how it was used, you may get fraud statutes that come into play. You know, so you have to think in more of a 360-degree way about all the potential statutes that can come into play in this prosecution, if there was one. We're focusing on the CFAA, and the other elements uh, are perhaps even more thorny. Mm. Right, so... Um I think, you know, just kind of going to your point, it was it was the case U.S. v. Mitra, I think that's how mm-hmm. you say it, where, um, you know, the court specifically stated that the term computer system cannot be narrowly interpreted to mean only computers, and that modern technology forces the legislature to uh, write broadly worded statutes that the courts must then use to apply to the facts of the case, which, again, just kind of all-encompassing goes back to our starting point that these mm-hmm. cases are very nar- very narrowly tailored and uh, based. You know, the courts to this day seem to, to rule them on a, on a fact, uh, fact basis. Yes. Um, so our issue seems to be more about the data mining that happened with mm-hmm. this demo because it doesn't seem to, none of the facts seem to really fall under this classic case of copyright infringement or, or 
even a purchase and a, and a sale, really. Mm -hmm. I mean, you would have the demo available on the console eShop and uh, through connecting to the internet, and you would click, uh, click wrap your way through the T's and C's, and after downloading this 3.2 gigabyte uh, game, you would play the demo, which, you know, of course, right. Nintendo made to, again, emphasize the point of hype and, and get people mm -hmm. engaged mm -hmm. and get them to buy the game. Sure. And as a result, these people ended up uh, data mining everything and kind of what... Well, who did the data mining? Hackers, I guess. Yeah, it's the whole thing. They're anonymous, right? right that posted anonymous. it on Reddit. Right. Which becomes an interesting thing. Why are they anonymous? It was something we were discussing in private. Right. Kind of idea. And, you know, if, if there's no clear-cut law, if we're on the, you know, we're still in, as you say, in thorny, <laughs> kind of it, digging through the weeds here, why uh, would people be so um, kind of shy when it comes to it revealing who they are if they are not going to have any, they're not going to be gaining anything from it anyway, um, except to potentially deter or... Uh, to deter sales from Nintendo itself. Well, that's one reason. As I said, there are a number of ways this conduct is criminalized. It's not just through the through the CFAA. That's kind of why the FBI and, and a number of um, uh, state uh, law enforcement agencies have cyber crime divisions. Uh, there, there is a real there's a real economic crime here if these demos had a backdoor to allow the hackers to gain entry to everything on your laptop once you downloaded this. One of the things I do is I write cybersecurity regulations for a variety of organizations, ranging from medical practices to charitable foundations uh, to financial services organizations. And one of the things that we put in there, and I do training on this as well, is don't download anything that you didn't expect to receive. Don't, it's official. Mm, it's don't click on something that you didn't expect to receive, and when in doubt, send it to your IT department and let them scan it. Nintendo releasing the demo available exclusively through the console device itself. Right. So the and then the potential hackers, I guess they're not hackers yet. They download the game, play the demo, and then hack their way through these barriers that have been put in that well, are not yeah. available to. It's like. In a silly way, easiest the way to think about this. Them to do that. Yes. The, the demo has exactly. breached the firewall. It's it's. Exactly. I would argue it's because Nintendo's a little inept sometimes when they're putting this stuff out there. That they should be more careful with a demo. They shouldn't be giving the whole file out there. Because really, a good example you see this all the time is downloadable content. Yes. That a lot of times the downloadable content is on the disc when it's released, which makes sense because it's really the whole game now. It's a policy issue should there be a paywall behind it. But what happens is people will go through it. I think it happened with uh, Street Fighter that I think Akuma was on. Uh, he's a very classic character in the game. And they just announced that now they're going to release it as DLC. It was like on the disc from the beginning. And that's how they, re I guess, reverse engineer or something. Go through all this you know, code and data and interpret it and find it out. I think it's sh just shocking that you needed to download basically the entire game to play, what was it, the first or second level? Yeah, it's like, literally, I mean, I played the, de the demo just to kind of check it out and see what it was I like. wait for Christmas morning, you know? <laughs> um, yeah, so they, I, I played it and it was very minimal. It was very, you know, they introduced some of the new features as you would do with any other new mm -hmm. game, kind of. They got, it was just kind of showing you how the, the you know, there's no more D-pad that you can use to like navigate around or whatever. But I mean, essentially from the basics, the demo itself took only 30 minutes of time. Right. What they, these people found, which is essentially the core attractiveness of the Pokemon franchise, is the Pokedex, mm -hmm. is the starter evolutions, you know, the final evolutions, and this was all leaked. And the best part is, is the starter evolutions, which we kind of discussed mm -hmm. opening this, was a big pull. It's what everybody loved and what everybody okay. looked forward to. Not only was this in the data mine, mm -hmm. but somebody months and months and months ago he calls himself the, the Chinese leaker, 
had leaked this to a to a mm-hmm. to a four chan database, and PokeTubers were talking about it for months. Could this be real? Could this? Whoa, be whoa. PokeTubers? Yeah. <laughs> what is that? That's a new one. <laughs> to me, it was a new one. Okay, they're like my dream, my dream like um, job. They become famous and make lots of money by talking about Pokemon. Oh so my god! So basically, like us for IP. <laughs> I mean, it's so awesome. You talk about Pikachu for five hours. And, um, so these people, they were wondering, is this, is this real? Is this not? It, and this caused a lot of conversation, a lot of, you know, mm-hmm. debate for months and months and months. And a lot of people were saying, these designs are dumb. I dislike this. You know, other people were saying, I love this. Um, and we got the actual confirmation with the data mine, with the data leak that these that these little, um, I forget what they're called, the the, the Pokedex entries. I oh, guess Pokedex, like, yes. Yeah, that the are, different entries of the yeah, Pokedex. Yeah, that they're in there and that they came up when these people data mined it. But, so it's all kind of feeding into each other and we're learning, is Pokemon, the franchise and Nintendo, are they suffering from this? Is this an actionable well, that gets bad. That's right. Or, or are they benefiting from this? And the, and the knife seems to cut yeah. both ways and on I, this. I just have like a taste question. For you there. Sure. Where it's like, because you say there's a harm and it seems like you don't want to know all the different Pokemon before you get the game. I'll just tell you personally, before I choose my starter Pokemon, I want to know what the final evolution is. I'm not just going to be, you know, so you do look it up before you get the game, right? You do, but like at the same time... You look at the version exclusive Pokemon? I was, so the big thing that was like, especially with this game, was the fact that there's a sun version and and its sister moon version, so to speak. And so Pokemon had kind of been building on this idea for months that it was going to be two very different games. I mean, we've had it from the start. You've had version exclusive Pokemon that you could find depending on which version you got. And Pokemon really seemed to use Mm -hmm. that aspect of the original Pokemon games as a core theme in their marketing you know, goals. So the whole time, I was personally hoping that the starter evolutions had a, they were version exclusive, that if you bought a different version, you were going to get a totally different starter theme. Unfortunately, uh, spoiler alert, (laughs) no such thing exists. But but look, isn't that, I mean, didn't they do you a service? Because now you should know that information. Almost Nintendo was misleading you in a certain way. But I think you were just misleading yourself. <laughs> but... You know, but you've got, an, you've got an interesting legal point here, which is, is the, author, is the authorization exceeded, or is there, in fact, authorization if Nintendo leaked, leaked it itself? I think that may be game, set, match, if anybody can establish that. And a good forensic... Uh, investigator can probably figure that out quickly. All right. So I think that one is is relatively easy. Now, if that really happened, and Nintendo brought found out and tried to bring a civil action against uh, some of these folks, you know, this could reflect on them very badly and in a very expensive way. Mm-hmm. They could get federal sanctions, attorneys fees, referred for ethical discipline. You know, for their lawyers, this stuff actually does happen. So, you know, that's, I think that level is extremely dangerous for Nintendo. If you want to take the the case where they had nothing to do with it, except maybe were a little sloppy in building a back door into this demo. Now, they may have some civil liability under, for lack of a better term, products liability theory, okay? Uh, because they uh, they released a product into commerce that was dangerous to ver- to users' private information, right? If some of these hackers, some of the data that they mined were bank accounts, for example, oh, okay, well. or medical information. I mean, especially wonder, since yeah. nowadays with the Nintendo eShop, people are linking. Like you said, they're linking. I mean, with the Xbox and the PlayStation, you you're linking. Card yeah, card. via credit uh-huh. card. I mean. That even though the demo doesn't ask you to pay for it because it was free, free yeah. um, a lot of people pre-order. You somehow got like a password. There's three point eight million, I think, or something Through like. That there's very a lot. Same bit of of data that you downloaded. So and you see, the, you, see the, you see the problem. But there's yes. a, there is, if that's the case, there's a real you know there may be a real criminal enterprise mm. at work. 
And, there, and then we get into the questions of whether they can be prosecuted under the CF, CFAA or various fraud, larceny, and computer trespass statutes at the state level. So I kind of want to actually go into the specific facts of like this situation. Mm -hmm. How do you feel about the fact that, you know, just kind of focusing on this authorization and the intent of Pokemon, the fact that, you know, last year in, or two years ago in 2014, they had you know, the alpha and um, alpha red or alpha, um, the omega ruby, omega ruby and alpha, alpha sapphire versions that got released. It was on the same uh, mm -hmm. console and it was, it could be downloaded via, you know, by the cartridge or downloaded via eShop. Yeah. And they also did a demo that also had a huge data mine leak. It was the same thing. And a lot of people were expressing um, concern about the fact that that Pokemon didn't seem to get their act together, that they couldn't hmm. seem to, you know... Nintendo, that, yeah. That they weren't yeah. able to do it. And and especially since the last time they did it, the exact same thing happened. There's, it's just, it just seems very odd. Another thing that seems very odd um, is the fact that the entire Pokedex was readily available to be data mined, but a lot of other things were scrubbed out of it. So you had, you know, you have these Twitter accounts that were saying... You know, if it weren't so ridiculous, I think it were intentional mm -hmm. because of the fact that they were they leaked the entire Pokedex, but they have no names, they have no stats, they have no, you know, none of the characters, the gameplay characters, they didn't really have information on that. It was very selective almost in, 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 in its choice of, of data mineable uh, information, shall mm -hmm. we say. I mean, I think sometimes Nintendo is possibly behind it because it seems like how she's saying well they can't be this bad at it how could they not, not get their act words, together yeah yeah I you know i you know i i understand that in the music business it's fairly common to leak snippets of a song mm -hmm. or a song or two or three you know before the album comes out uh that's been done god 40, 50 years now they used to do that. And they still and they still do that. You know, but I, I, I as I said, I think the legal issue is going to is is going to be, you know, is the how would the a prosecution be fashioned? If it was under the CFAA, you get back to the question of did uh, was this access without authorization or exceeding authorization? If I'm defending this case I'm going to try, I'm going to hire if, I have, if my client has the money, uh, yeah. or if I'm public defender, if I can find a creative way to do this, you know, maybe get one of you to come in and help me on this, or one of the clinics. Um, <laughs> I'd be clinic next semester. <laughs> I will do your Pokemon cases. I will. <laughs> You're too busy poketubing. So, so you know, to try to figure out. Wait a minute, maybe this authorization is not uh, it's not been exceeded or this access wasn't without authorization maybe there was kind of a wink wink and uh, oh gee you know uh, you, you're, you're, you're taking our, our code I'm shocked shocked you know it's like the movie Casablanca right you know Rick's uh, is gambling and Rick's joint everybody's very shocked so you know if you have to think like you have to think like a defendant you poke holes in the government's case and you poke holes in the government's case by attacking each and every element. So authorized access is, is, is a good one. And it gets back to the question, if even if we don't take the position that Nintendo is surreptitiously okaying this access, let's say they're not, but the terms of service say you can't take, you can't reverse engineer our code, you can't uh, divulge it uh, outside the confines of your machine and your personal use, etc. But uh, if we allow that, and this is where the Ninth Circuit has gone, and some of the district courts uh, within the Ninth Circuit, are you allowing private industry to criminalize online conduct by saying that you're setting authorization by virtue mm -hmm. of the terms of service? Who writes the terms of service? Yeah. You know, in our system, right, it's government who determines the, the standards by which you must uh, adhere. Otherwise, you step over those lines and you've committed a crime. Since when did we outsource that to Nintendo? That's a great question. And when do you ever really say no? 
to the terms of service. How many times has that even happened? Well, Let's say on this demo, they probably had something beforehand. Most, you know? almost nobody reads these things. Mm -hmm. No, uh, no I mean, that tends to be something that could trace all the way back to when Apple and iTunes first started becoming yes. kind yeah. of the main, you know, stream for music and how you couldn't really listen to iTunes or anything on iTunes without, you know, it was contract by adhesion almost when you yes. could, had to agree or you had nothing at all. And I think that's kind of what the, the click wrap, browse wrap kind of realm has evolved easy. into. And, and it's just so interesting that there are these people out there who kind of say, I don't believe in this system. I'm going to do what I want. This system is, you know, it's my, I downloaded this to my console. console. I own the console. Mm -hmm. I own the data code that has been downloaded onto it. And I can do what I want with well, it. Well, you know, they know they're doing something wrong. Otherwise, they probably would own up to it. They're not, like you said, not putting their name on it. You know, putting it on Reddit and 4chan. So I, I think they know there's like something at least fishy going on that they don't want they don't want it public that they were right. the ones that but did then, this. But then you have these you know kind of debated issues about that itself because mm -hmm. you would have people who would be specifically invited to the Nintendo Pokemon headquarters to play the game for an hour and a half. And what they would do is you'd have group one go, and then you'd have group two go, and they would mm -hmm. be playing the that hour and a half snippet simultaneously. And the other, they would kind of wait to see right. um, yep. who would reveal the information first on YouTube. And whoever revealed it first would kind of be held liable, what? while the other one would kind of free ride on the backs of this revealed information uh. and get and get views and get sponsorships uh. and get, you know, maintain the PokerTuber influence across YouTube. And, and that's also something that's quite... Questionable. That's always an interesting dilemma because that's the whole embargo situation. Right. I, I, I don't know the specifics of that contract, but I'm sure they had them sign something basically saying, on this date, you can run your piece or run your video. Once someone breaks it, yes, everyone else breaks it in turn. I think sometimes it's not even liability concerns there. It's more like they'll never trust you again. Industry kind of will just shun you, your outlet, for doing that. Absolutely. But, it's a fascinating area and... I teach a course here that I created called ELAW, Information Safeguards and Electronic Evidence Challenges. It's a, it's a seminar. I'm going to be teaching it in the spring. And uh, one of the points that I make to my students, one of the themes of the course, is this is the fastest growing area in the law. All right. How is digital information technology going to be... Uh, going to be guided, if you will, through the morass and the thicket of laws created for, for paper. Just in this country, when you start getting across borders, when you start talking about data protection and privacy law, and then uh, be, when, when, these, uh, when, when these games and other applications uh, and other information containers are being sent across borders, Layer that as well with intellectual property protection, okay, and contract law in the terms of use. We draft end-user license agreements, API sandbox agreements, terms of service, uh, privacy policies. Uh, more recently, I've been involved in due diligence for mergers and acquisitions on questions of cybersecurity, privacy compliance, and who owns the rights. And how are the rights transferred? It's a, it's almost like a Tower of Babel. But mm -hmm. this is the area that is where the legal jobs are going to be in the next 10 years. All right? You know, I'm sure Nintendo's U.S. division has a fairly large legal department. I can tell you that Google's legal department is over 600 in-house lawyers. Wow. Okay, Microsoft is probably near the near that near that size because it's this kind of guidance that that you just can't read in a book. You just can't read in a book. You have to be able to puzzle it out in this way and be able to predict predict where the courts are going. You know, and that's where the trend is. I do a lot of work in healthcare. Right, HIPAA was written in the 90s. The electronic medical mm -hmm. record was envisioned by HIPAA, but it was just a gleam in people's eye by back then. Now, 85% of 
of, of U.S. practitioners are on it. So, you know, what, what, I tell, what I tell the students is, you know, we have to be able to advise our clients of where the trend will be so they know where their business should go, so they can, they can navigate it. You know, Wayne Gretzky famously said he was as good as he was because as a, as a Hall of Fame hockey player because he didn't just skate to where the puck was, he skated to where the puck would be. Mm -hmm. And that's where I suggest to the students, you will add value to your clients. If your client's a government agency, a corporation, or, uh, or private individuals. You know. and, then to be, and then the other aspect of the art is being able to argue it. To be able to educate a tech-phobic judge. To be able to explain these concepts we're talking about to a jury in the Bronx. Okay? Or Brooklyn. Or Staten Island. I mean, you know, they, they, you know, the whole pokey universe is something that it, most of them have no clue what you're talking about. I think Pokemon Go. I don't know if you saw Central Park after yeah. that. Well, I you. work there, so that's why like, I was yeah, witnessing it every day. That's a very narrow statement. Okay? You know, if we're starting to talk about layers upon layers of, of, of copyright for code, copyright for the uh, image of, mm -hmm. of the different creatures, copyright for the text, okay? And then, and question, is there patent protection for these code? Generally, there isn't, oh. all right? Through the Alice line of cases, the Supreme Court has pulled that back dramatically. That's Justice Thomas's legacy. So what would I tell you if three of the names are two, two or three of the names are confirmed to be trademarked and that, that was initially before anything had even been released? And that was conveniently scrubbed. The names yeah. themselves were scrubbed from there. So you it could, seems you could like do somebody that. almost... Yeah, the lawyers got to it, I think. Yeah. And, yeah. and we're concerned about... Getting a little into the weeds on IP law on this. On genericizing the trademark. Mm. Okay? Um, Xerox had litigation that went on for almost as long as Jardice v. Jardice and Bleak House, which was a 150-year-old lawsuit that Charles Dickens wrote about, all right, about the, about the Xerox name being genericized. When you go to make a photocopy, you say, oh, I'm going to go Xerox. Yes. Okay? You know, I mean, I... You need I, a Band-Aid. Yeah, Band-Aid, exactly. Kleenex. Kleenex yep. was Kleenex. another one. Um, go Would back you... a little further, Hoover, vacuum cleaners. Would you argue that this could potentially be something that Pokemon, the Pokemon franchise, would have to look at and potentially... No, because what is Pokemon at the end of the day? They're Pokemon. But it's a video game. That's why you don't have to worry of generic... Like, you're not going to... If you're going to say, I'm going to play Pokemon, it is a video game. So I think, like, that's, that's, what I, that's what I learned with, like, how you always win the genericism cases is. So the example, I think... Rollerblades, excuse me, yeah. Rollerblades, which is a type of inline skate. That's how you avoid the genericism. It could be interesting. I don't think you have a case of dilution, but maybe. That's, I, I think the more interesting scenario is you talk about the weeds of IP law and we talk about access. What if a hacker goes into this game and makes their own files and puts it in the game? This is, I know, Nintendo actually dealt with this case before. I think it was Galoob versus uh, Game Genie. And they basically said, if you're using like a Game Shark, something hacking into the game and changing the code, that's fine. As long as like you're not selling it out there and you're not like, you're not making a derivative work, you're just changing the existing work. But if you make a new Pokemon, you're not just like changing the stats, you're not just changing some of the scenery, I guess, or something. Yeah. Maybe now you're making a derivative work, and if you put it out in the market, I think definitely Nintendo could come down and saying you're making a Pokemon Uranium is a fan game that came out, I think, a couple months ago, and Nintendo did a cease and desist immediately and put everything down. Basically, that could be taking away you know, future revenue for them because this person made up, let's say, 100 to 150 new Pokemon that are unauthorized. Yeah, you're making a derivative work, undoubtedly. And I understand the argument of fair use for fan game, but not really. This is definitely violating a copyright. Fair use is a tough is a tough mountain to climb with a game. Yes. You know that that's that's a tough one. You know, with a song, with a book, maybe 
Fair use for a game? Boy, I don't know. That's a tough one. And the other thing you have to keep in mind, too, to, to your question, is this stuff gets very expensive. Trade, uh, trademark litigation, copyright litigation, patent investigations, you're talking potentially millions of dollars in legal fees. All right. Now, a company like Nintendo maybe can absorb it. Smaller companies, it's much more difficult to do so. Right? And sometimes federal courts can get federal judges can get angry and can shift fees, mm -hmm. and you can get bankrupted that way. So you know, there's a real risk management aspect to all of this too. Now, the extent to which the game publishers are thinking about this, I don't know because I don't represent any of them. But if I, if I did, this is one of the things I would suggest to them. You know, be very, very careful what you ask for. And be very careful what you're putting, what you're putting out there. You have, I would do a whole risk matrix with some of their designers and their business people. And you know, one, of, one of our functions as counsel is, and I learned this a long time ago, is not to tell the business client, don't do it. They won't listen anyway, and then they'll just get angry. You know, you say to them, you can do it this way, but here is your downside. You can do it, your upside is this. Your downside is this. You know, if they ask for an opinion, you give it. But most of the time, you know, they just want to know what the lay of the land is. Yeah. And, it's, and the lay of the land is moving. It's moving. There is very little black and white law, as you, as you both said. Yes. You know, in getting ready for this discussion. There's very little black and white law. Uh, the circuits are going to go in all different directions. I've seen it happen in a number of different areas in this space. So you know, you, you need to ask the questions of where are you? Where are is your audience? Where are your potential customers? Mm -hmm. right? You know, which then gets into questions of jurisdiction too. Just because you're on the internet doesn't mean the entire country has jurisdiction. There are cases that limit that. doesn't necessarily work that way. Going from Nicastro at the Supreme Court, McIntyre against Nicastro on the Supreme Court, all the way all the way down to the state level. And you got to be prepared to argue all of these different levels. And I think specifically, just kind of as a, as a final point, kind of the way that Pokemon has really drew my attention specifically with this whole data mining issue was the fact that we can't really pinpoint the intent specifically because there has been this, you know, magazine called the Cora Cora magazine right. since 1976 that kind of gave this uh, first publishing, you know, mm -hmm. first talked about mm -hmm. the, the Pokemon and kind of what was to come before the official Pokemon uh, company would release it to the public as a form of advertising. And it was, it, you know, <coughs> Wikipedia has stated, you know, you know, on the few things I could find about Korra Korra, that, that it's one of the main reasons why Pokemon has become so famous, because it was the exclusive magazine to go to to learn about Pokemon. So, and maybe yeah. it seems as though Pokemon over the years, along with these hackers that have evolved to fit the technology, and mm -hmm. I guess we're all on the same page about arguing that the law should be simultaneously evolving, that Pokemon itself has evolved its... It's you know pun intended. Uh, it's Pokemon or so it's marketing strategy to to em embrace these hackers and say you know let's use this towards our advantage. Let's let's pretend that this stuff is as a way to to get real people in more. And I guess the final prong of of the initial structure that you had you had you know kind of laid out for us at the beginning proving economic damage will be something that we can only uh we can only find out about in, in months to come when when those you know numbers start coming in and we start seeing just how well pokemon did in relation to the demo download in relation to the demo download did they lose anything by virtue of the fact that it was and can there be a tie yeah but i, I don't know about that speculative? because that's not speculative because you're you are making an assumption there right that everybody that downloaded it would have bought it. It's free mean? versus forty dollars. Well, I'm saying you know I'm what I mean. So it's like I don't expect the same numbers. I I guess. I mean, I maybe guess. everyone was as, as enthralled. But you we know, have but, precedent. We have yes. the Alpha Sapphire. 
you know, Omega Ruby games that have had the downloads and we can see, you know, kind of do the, this, attrition the way rate. that you said, the, a matrix that would prove how many people downloaded the demo. But didn't you say they were also leaked? They were. So, so I mean, this is all. This is again. That's I, the. I that's like right that's now, what I say. Only time will tell to see just how much. And I mean, now we're already dealing yeah. with issues where people, you know, manufacturers uh, of the game have started. Mm -hmm. so, you know, they've gotten their first shipments. People have started. Uh, I guess not lawfully. Uh, began playing the game before the street date and have been leaking that for information. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, leaking the entire games now. So you know, this was something that I was starting. You know, back way back when when the initial uh, data mine leaks occurred, which was about a couple weeks ago, a month ago maybe. But now we're starting to see everything's being leaked, mm -hmm. and it, I guess only time will tell if 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 this will have, uh, you know, if not in Pokemon's case, if this is something that you know future game gaming uh, industry, you know, as a whole right. can look at and and use as a tool. Uh, for something that could potentially be as big as, you know, the Sony leaks or something like that. We never know. See, that's what I worry is that time won't tell. Because it's like, you won't be able to pinpoint it exactly. Because it's so hard because you have almost no baseline. Time will Even tell that, whether time will tell, I think is kind of... I guess because it's like there's so many false positives there. I and that's why it's going to be so interesting. Because it's like, what if the game does off? What if the game is like awful? What if all of a sudden all the reviews come out? I know that's not going to happen because all Pokemon games do well. But, like, there's so many different examples out there of, like... Because I, 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 you know, with a different example, and I think this one is more telling with uh, Expendables 3. Because when you have a movie, the whole thing is leaked. That is the movie. It's not like a game where, sure, the information's out there, but you still can play it kind of idea. They said some people, like, it didn't actually hurt the box office. I don't believe that. But a lot of people made it's that hard. argument it's there because they were saying it's like, well, it's an action movie. So some people watch some of it, but you're not watching it for the plot. And everybody was like, well, I still want to see it in movie theaters because it's like you miss the point of like the explosions and stuff. It's an interesting argument. And it's like, who knows? Maybe that is true. Some people that had no interest whatsoever yeah. saw it and then went out there and it's like. That's what's very interesting when we deal with all of this like harm in the market, like a speculative harm. It's so hard to measure. That's why these prosecutions are very, very difficult. And most of these, most prosecutors will shy away from them, except in the most egregious cases. All right, the United States against Drew case was a very egregious one where uh, the defendant pretended to be a 16-year-old boy and created a persona on MySpace to see what this what this particular girl named Megan Meyer was saying about her daughter. Mm. So she created a persona as a 16-year-old boy and then at some point the, the boy told the girl that he was moving away, that he didn't like her anymore and after several more, said the world would be better off if she wasn't in it. The girl committed suicide. Oh, my. And lacking any other way to bring a prosecution, the prosecutors went under the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, claiming that the creation of a false persona violated the terms of use of MySpace. And therefore, was accessing information, i.e., the communication with the 13 year old, without authorization or exceeding authorization. Jury found, I'm, I'm sorry, case was dismissed. Case was dismissed because the judge said, We're not here to have MySpace criminalize. I was just going to say, yeah. just the way we but, can't have but Pokemon do it. it. You know, another judge might have ruled the other way. Now, what the circuit court would have done in the Ninth Circuit is very difficult to determine because there's a case called U.S. against uh, NOSAL, N-O-S-A-L, where one employee gave another employee her password and the recipient employee then went and hacked into all the employees' accounts and got credit card and other oh. personal information. Um, and uh, the court uh, affirmed that conviction. 
So you see the shaky ground the law is on here. All right, you know, you don't get much worse facts than the Drew case, all right, yet the judge dismissed that complaint. So you can't really square that with the Ninth Circuit's decision in Nassau. So you see that the, the courts are just going off and splits 180 degree different directions. And we're going to see that for a while until one of two things happens. Either one of these cases goes to the Supreme Court after more circuits rule, or the CFAA is going to be updated, which I have very little faith will happen with the next Congress. I just don't see it as a priority for them. And with the upcoming Supreme Court and all of it, so we'll see just how that, that will play out too. So. Yeah, you know, it's interesting though, when the Supreme Court considers IP cases, the ideology is switch. Yes. It's yeah. very interesting. I mean, Justice Kagan lines up with Justice Thomas on those cases, particularly the, you know, the Alice line of cases. Well, Alice was before Justice Kagan, I believe. But you see, the point I'm making is still the same. You get some, shall we say, strange bedfellows on the mm -hmm. court on, on these cases. And uh, some justices actually say, you know what, I don't know much about patent and trademark. I'll defer to one of my, uh, one of my colleagues and, and, and goes along. So, you know, you're seeing protections being pulled back from, uh, from code. Yeah. It's very, very hard. And we have a, an IP practice in my office. And my IP partner tells me it's easy to discourages. Uh, most of the developers are trying to patent their code. He says you're better off copywriting it. Yes. And maybe giving trademark protection to the name if you can get it. I mean, it because the way they interpreted it, what you would always want, I think, copyright protection over patents. Like well, even if there was an option, it doesn't even seem like there is totally. It's like you get. I, I think you get at least longer protection. It's easier to get. Yes, that's Much it. easier to get. Trying to get things through the patent and trademark office, having done it, can be very, very difficult and very lengthy and very expensive. Yes. Yeah. I think that was a great episode. Yeah, thank you so much for coming in. Oh, you're welcome. That's educating us. If you ever get the game, let me know how, how you feel about it. <laughs> Feedback and surveys are appreciated. Yes. Uh, so if you want to read more about the blog post, it'll be on FordhamIPLJ.org. Um, you know, we'll have a lot of exciting episodes coming up as well. Uh, stay tuned. Thanks for listening. <laughs>